The Living Legends Foundation presents Music Day, a verified hit. Here are your hosts, Rakia Mays and Chris Bevins. Welcome to the Music Day, a verified hit podcast. Seen through the prism of Black music, Black lives have always mattered. I love that term. This is the podcast brought to you by the Living Legends Foundation. Where music, I like to say, is visualized, documented for those behind us to see what happened before us. My name is Rakia Mays. I'm here with my dope co-host, Chris Bivens. What's up, Chris? I'm doing very well. How about yourself tonight? I'm doing all right. Oh, it's night. See, I'm in LA. It's night where you are? Yeah, it's night where I'm at. It's, it's unfortunate. <laughs> uh, I would like to be over where you at right now, but it just, it just didn't work out for me right now. COVID-19 has been a real thing. <laughs> Um, so you know, let's focus on the positive today. I think, I mean, I'm, I'm under the pressure. We're gonna have a great show. Uh, I yeah. might just be, you know, just about excited about it. Uh, cause you know, we're working with some living legends. That's um, right. But today's show, we have a, we've got a great guest. Um, do you, uh, you want to shed a little bit light on, on who we're going to talk to today? Our guest, uh, he, he's an OG. He's, he's our very first guest. So this is a, a very big deal, ladies yes. and gentlemen. So he is the chairman of the Living Legends Foundation. We better get this right, Chris. He is the former senior VP of promotions and marketing and a VP of promotions, Arista Warner Capital. And on top of that, because he's got a lot of jobs, uh, he's a current radio program director in Atlanta. He's a legend in the game, Mr. David Linton. What's going on, David? What's happening? It's good to be here. Thank you for having me. Of course, we'd be remiss if we didn't. Hey, it's good to be wanted somewhere. You know what I mean? That's, that's so very true. Uh, it's amazing. Now, how how are you feeling? I mean, I know we we've got a lot to talk about, but I think just before we even get into everything, I think it's important to realize that we're in a very interesting time. You know, which is the evolution of one the music industry, but also of this whole digital situation where we can do a show like this. Um, how has things kind of changed for you from then to now? Well, you know, I think this is an exciting time. I've always embraced technology myself. So I, I think this is a really uh, great time. I think from, depending on, from if you're, if you're promotion, promoting records, it's great because you can, you have different ways of getting music to people, you know, you know, digital delivery, didn't have to deal with CDs and that type of stuff. From a marketing standpoint, there's digital marketing that can go on. And so, I mean, and just, you know, I can now talk to a program director you know, while, while I'm on set on the phone, I got my iPhone, we can actually talk. And if he's lying to me, I can tell, you know, I mean, you know, <laughs> about a record. So it's just, it's just really great. I, I'm embracing technology. I think it's been really good. And the upside is that because of streaming, it has brought the industry back. And matter of fact, not only did it bring the industry back, but it's proven that black music is still strong. I don't think it ever died, but it's proving now that it's still back and it's, it's good to be in the black. Hey, we like that. We like to be in the black. That's a really uh, interesting point to make. I mean, when I hear black music and, and we hear that to, today in terms of this era that we're in, we're in this Black Lives Matter era, era, Black Lives Matter protests worldwide. What did it mean to you back in the day hearing black music as opposed to hearing that term black music today? Well, you know, black music then and now is what was empowering 
I mean, we went through so many eleva uh, evolutions, should I say. I mean, our music has always been defined by other people from being race music back in the 50s or whatever. Uh, then it, obviously they broke it down into, you know, the, the genres R&B or soul and all that. But in the 70s, um, when in the height of the, right after the civil rights movement and the 70s, you know, black became popular. After James Brown says, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud, it became the thing. And so we embraced black and then black music actually became an empowering uh, element for people working in the music industry. It actually created jobs for people in the music industry. It created an ecosystem that we lost somewhere along the line and hopefully we'll get it back. But, you know, being black and black music made us strong. That's when you had, you know, not only Motown, which was the pop side of black, but it was good, excellent. You know, everybody wanted to be that. But then you had Philly International, you had Stax. And then of course, you know, you had the creation of what um, became black music divisions. All these things that were really empowering to, to black people. So, you know, I've always been in the black. Mr. Linton, if you don't mind, can you just kind of walk us through just kind of history of your career for those of us that don't know? Um, well, I started in, in radio um, as a program director. Um, and I worked at radio stations in uh, Raleigh, North Carolina, Elizabeth City, North Carolina, Durham, North Carolina. But then I realized one thing, there's a difference between fame and fortune. Mm -hmm. I was in radio and everybody knew me, but I was making no money. So I went to the record <laughs> industry. <laughs> you know, it was cool to get in everybody's club, but it was better to have some money when I got in the club. Amen. So no, but I, I started in the um, record industry by, I was hired by uh, Ray Harris, who's the, actually the founder of the Living De uh, Legends Foundation and um, Ray Harris uh, and Eddie, Ernie Singleton. I started out as a regional representative for Warner Brother Records, the black music division. Um, Ernie was the uh, senior VP of uh, black music and Ray was the vice president of promotion. They hired me, I was in Dallas. I worked in Dallas for a number of years. Then they transferred me to uh, Los Angeles for, LA, um, for Warners. Then I became the national director of black music promotion at Reprise. Uh, Reprise re was a, an old label that was originally started by Frank Sinatra that Warner reacted, reactivated, should I say, and, but it didn't have any black artists. So they put a black music promotions department, which became under the umbrella of Ray and Ernie. And so I eventually became the national director of that uh, label. And we, um, the thing that really jump-started my career out of that was we, we promoted the New Jack City soundtrack. Wow. Um, that soundtrack really kind of catapulted my career and everybody was watching me because I knew how to market myself too. That's another thing. Um, and then uh, I became vice president of R&B promotion at uh, Polygram uh, PLG Records, Poly Label Group, which really became Island Records, which then morphed into Island Def Jam. We were at, I was at the beginning of the creation of Island Def Jam. And then from there, I, was, um, I went over to become vice president of black music promotion at Arista Records under uh, Clive Davis. Um, mm. Hired by Gene Riggins, who was the uh, uh, general man, uh, vice, senior vice president of Black Music, who ultimately went and started Republic Records, uh, was the one who started Universal. But that's another story. We'll get into that. She's lost in history, but you know that's when they do the story, not us. <laughs> and then uh, from there, I wound up Capitol Records. We had great success there at um, at Arista. We ruled the '90s, I like to say. 
because we had Bad Boy, LaFace, and all that. So we did all that stuff. So we had the soundtrack um, uh, of the 90s. And then I was uh, tapped to go to Capitol Records. And Capitol Records got out of black music for about seven years um, mm. because of the West Coast rap, gangster. Somebody shot up the Capitol building. The president said, I don't want none of that. So they got out of black music for seven years. Wow. And then I was tapped to uh, go back and start, get them back into black music as senior vice president of R&B promotion and marketing. Um, and we did that for a number of years. And then of course, consolidation started. Um, and I found myself on the outside, but it was cool because one thing I learned about this game, when you negotiate yourself into a contract, the first thing you negotiate is your way out. So they wrote me a check, I went home and I'm cool. Um, and I did some independent consulting, et cetera. And now I'm in Atlanta um, programming what is now the number one jazz uh, station in the country. And it's owned by a historically black college, Clark Atlanta University. Yeah. And I'm chairman of, of the uh, Living Legends Foundation. I can tell you that that New York gave you, you Tardis, you started to talk about Biggie and, and, and all of those things. And plus you survived gunshots. So I know you had to have some <laughs> in you, David. When, when I hear you talk though, I, I think about, there's a new term that we hear now, it's called culture creators. And, and, and those who are, really came up in that era and that, that 90s hip hop era, you know, really when, when hip hop was starting to make money, now, 20 years later, we're seeing there's parties, culture creator parties, it's a trademark term, there are culture creator awards. Do you consider yourself, A, a culture creator, and, and B, do you even like that term? Hmm. Well, you know what, I think the culture creators are really, I think black people as a whole are culture creators. Everything we do is, is appropriated and adapted. It started way back when, when, um, you know, Pat Boone did Little Rich's Tutti Frutti. So mm. we've always been uh, the culture creators. I think, but it's always been the artists, I think that are the real culture creators because they are the ones who create the soundtrack. You know, I think for myself as the record promotion executive or promotion, I just help promote the culture, you know, but I think it's us, we take the culture from, it comes out of our hoods and then it's, we put it on the big stage. And once it's been on the big stage, then it becomes appropriated by other folks, by who I like to call the culture vultures. And so, um, but so again, I think what we really do is we create the culture, but I think as a, as a record executive, as a promotion person, we just promote it because it really comes from um, the streets. Just like hip hop started in the Bronx and moved, you know, then it eventually got to, you know, nobody was playing it, radio wouldn't play it, and then Curtis Blow came, and then that was the first certified gold record, and then of course, Russell came from my old neighborhood, we'd go to Russell's parties in the summer, you know. So again, it comes from the streets, and that's it. Now, I'd like, I got a quick question though. So let's go back into, you know, what's the difference between black and urban? What's, how do you feel about those, uh, those terms? Well, see, I never, one thing I never did, I never accepted urban as a, um, in all my titles, I would never put urban in it. Interesting. Um, see, I knew the, the genesis of urban. Urban came out of New York with a black radio station, um, WBLS, which is originally owned by Inner City Broadcasting, mm. which was owned by the Suttons. And Percy Sutton was a former Mar Manhattan Borough president, and he was Malcolm X's attorney. Mm. 
So you don't get no blacker than that. I didn't that's know. Black, that. black, black, black. You, that's black, 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 right? So, but they were, they became, and Frankie Crocker, the legendary program director, BLS was the number one rated station in, in, in New York City, which is the number one market, which made it number one in the country. Hmm. But it was number eight in billing because Madison Avenue had a stereotype about black audiences and what we bought and what we didn't buy. Because you got to remember, prior to BLS, it was really a lot of AM radio stations. And a lot of their ads was payday loans, you know, that kind of thing, rent to own kind of stuff. Whereas BLS really appealed to a more sophisticated audience. And so being number one, Frankie term, coined the term urban so that the black scared Madison Avenue. Mm. Urban was a little bit more palatable, you know, palatable for them. And so, because again, he described his audience as being sophisticated. He was a sophisticated radio station in a metropolitan area with music for urban and suburban types. Because you can't be number one in New York just by listening to black people in a million or eight billion. So there had to be a lot of different people listening to you. Yeah. So he coined that term. Um, and of course, that made it more easier for Madison Avenue to accept. And so they could now buy time because they had a, they were, you know, it was an urban, not black. So for Madison Avenue, it worked. But when it came to the music industry, as a, as a, when I became a music executive, that term didn't make sense. But again, something that we create, a cultural black program director comes up with something that makes it so he can make money for his station, um, then it's appropriated by somebody else. Then white consultants, who had, you know, owned white stations who were playing black music, they took the turn. And so it's kind of spread. Then inside the record companies, hmm, urban. So, you know, you know, because the black music divisions got so popular. When I talked about those black music divisions, we had a billion dollar industry with inside a billion dollar industry. Mm. You know, we had, I, uh, like my bosses or I, when I, I reported to the president, I didn't report to nobody else. So, and I had budget control. So if I wanted to sign something or do something, it could be done. And so could my counterparts. Like my, um, the president of the Living Legends Foundation, Varnell Johnson, he, he um, pretty much created Jive Records for the most part, you know, but those, and, and Capitol Records, because they had the power to sign. And so they created these infrastructures that became so popular that they became threatening to the white boys. Let me, mm. let me keep it real. They were just threatened by our blackness and by the power we were yielding. They broke up the divisions. And once they broke up the divisions, then they kind of diluted. It's just like, if you like your coffee black, a minute it gets weak. So wow. again, that's what they just did. And that's how it kind of fell apart. So Urban for me was never good for record labels. It was good for radio. Wow. Mm. Well, I hope I didn't get too long-winded, but that- No, you should. I'm really passionate about this. You know, you I'm passionate about this. As you should be. You know, I, I, that, that's really interesting. And, and while you were saying that, I was looking up some really um, interesting stats, data geek here. So urban radio is the number one medium for Blacks, 13.8% of the total national audience. And in 2019, uh, in 2020, Black listeners made up 13.5% of the total national radio audience that's ages 12 and older. So, you know, and according to these stats, radio listenership among African-Americans is up 5% in 
that's in the past decade, but but now, you know, even as we talk about urban, you know, I'm sure you heard about the Grammys, they don't want to use urban anymore. So the urban contemporary album category of the Grammys, it's now being renamed best progressive R&B album that's ahead of next year's ceremony. Did you hear about that? And what are your thoughts? Well, you know, I think that, again, it's always somebody else labeling us. I mean, I never, I don't remember when anybody called me and said I wanted to be named African-American. I don't know when they, I never was in them colored days, so I don't know about that one. I've always been black. I've never, Negro, nobody ever called me and said, hey, what do you want to be called? So right. the same thing happens with our music and with the labeling. It's always what makes people comfortable. Now, I did take part in a conversation and just talking to some, some of the contemporary uh, executives who thought that the term urban was actually holding them back. And so that's why they don't want to use the term. Wow. And the term urban is not holding them back. Yeah. It's the racism in the industry that's holding them back. Yeah, that's so crazy let's, to let's me. face the reality, you know. Yeah. So again, um, they're going to call it, I mean, they started, we went from race to progressive R&B. But what is progressive R&B? I mean, what, really, what is that? I don't know what that is. That sounds ridiculous. <laughs> right. What is that? <laughs> exactly. What is it? You know what? And the thing about it, see, black music is R&B, is hip hop, is jazz, is gospel. And back in the day, when we had black music divisions, we controlled all that music. Yeah. All that came under the black music division. Again, it's all about one thing that um, our, our, our cousins <laughs> are good at. They're good at divide and co conquer. Yeah. And yeah. so that's, that's what they do. And so they appropriate. And we always feel that we get their approval. We've done something good. You know, I don't need their approval. I, as an executive throughout my career, I have gold and platinum plaques on my wall representing 90 millions in sales. Mm. You put a dollar to it, that's almost a billion dollars. And I have colleagues who have much more than me. Yeah. So again, when we look at that kind of power, who do we need to validate us? And in today's world with technology, they can pick a finger. Literally, just like that. <laughs> it's, it's crazy to me. Um, and it, I, but I am curious though, I, I, not to get too you know, sidetracked, but as an, ex, as, as an executive, you know, what, what was that like for you? you know, I, Cause for me, I would feel like that's like a dream job. Was that something that you always kind of wanted? Did you fall into it? What was that situation? No, I always did want to be in the music industry. I love music. Music was just a part of me. Um, mm -hmm. I grew up in New York, so that's why I'm so intimately aware of what happened with the BLS situation. Grew up, Frankie Crocker was my, like, my idol. Um, I was the guy who got the newspaper and read it from the back, but not for the sports section, but I went to the entertainment section. Nice. And so, so I was always in tune to the car. Every, I'd have my headphones after school, listen to the radio. So in doing research, you know, I was, I'm a cool nerd, but I'm a nerd, I'm a cool nerd though. <laughs> um, so I like to read. And so I was just reading about the lifestyles of all these guys, you know, and, and ladies in the business. And so, um, I went to school, I got my master's, my BA in communications, um, mass media, and then I got my master's degree in, 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 in marketing media, media mm -hmm. marketing, should I say. So once I got into the business, I just, I just, just loved it. So, and it was, it was the greatest job. I got, the, I got a chance to work with artists, you know, go, go to concerts for free. I mean, let's look at the real basic stuff, you know, go to concerts for free. Um, I had a dream job, 
I could travel on somebody else's job on dime, got to see the whole world. So it was really, um, it was a great, great job. It's a great industry. Um, so I, I love it. Yeah. To answer your question in short, it was a calculated plan. Yes. <laughs> I love that. Now, so wait, because now that you say that, I need to hear more about that plan because, you know, I was looking at your bio. You got a lot in this bio here, right? So mm -hmm. you worked with Salt and Pepper. That resulted in their first multi-platinum album by a female rap group. That's huge. Mm -hmm. and, and then this next line, it says you contributed to over 90 million albums sold. 90 million. Right. Whitney Houston, Diddy, Biggie, Tony Braxton, Outkast, Usher. So, so when, when you think about that time, what is the most memorable moment, craziest moment that comes to mind? What's, what's, what's the first thing? The craziest moment? To be very honest, well, there's two of them, um, but the craziest has to be the fact that um, the night Biggie died. Oh, wow. Unfortunately, that you know that that night we were all there. We would we had took it. We'd gone out to L.A. And the thing is, you know, the grace of God, we were out there for almost a week, and we was just hanging out out in the open. We're going to radio. Everything was cool. Everything was lovely. And at any given time, somebody could have done something crazy. But it was the night after the Soul Train. Um, mm. and we were supposed to all go to a party right after. Um, and I actually left, I left Soul Train earlier to go, to go back to the hotel. And then I was going to meet them at the next spot. And, you know, for some reason I didn't get back to the Peterson and I just waited. I went to the spot where we were having, we were going to have a T TLC party that night. Mm. Um, and they never showed up. Wow. And so I said, you know what? They probably got into, you know, whatever. And so I hung out for a while, had a couple of drinks, went back to the hotel. And then about one o'clock LA time, I got this call from my partner, Lionel uh, right now, who was my co-vice president at Ariston. And he said, they got Biggie. When he said they got Biggie, I thought, he said they shot Biggie, but I thought he said they got Biggie. So I thought they busted him for some weed, to be very honest. I'm like, oh, who's gonna bust him for some weed at, at this time? And of course, the next day, it was a mad dash to get out of LA, because anybody from the West, from the east coast was just not feeling safe there but that was that's the downer the other the other first one is when i met whitney houston and um i don't get awed by any artist but um i asked i went into her dressing room she was getting it was a video shoot and i had just got hired by arista records and so and um y'all may not believe this but this is what whitney said what she said she said she asked she asked Jean, she said, who's that, my, who's that fine brother with you? <laughs> that's what she said. That's what she said. And Jean said, that's, that's David, our, our new vice president. And she said, she said, come on. She said, do you smoke? I said, yeah. And I said, yeah. And I, and I pulled out my Newport. She said, oh, Newport. She said, oh, we're going to get along perfectly. And she just, she took my cigarette and gave me a kiss. I'm done. We're good. <laughs> I have no questions to ask. <laughs> that's amazing. I mean, that's that's really. I mean, for me, um, you know, I, I'm also an aspiring artist myself. Um, so to hear stories like this and to, to, to literally meeting gods on earth are the people that you're talking about, the Biggies, uh, the Whitney Houston's. I mean, these people that have changed and curated and cultivated the culture. Um, so 
where what happens next in life you know like it's not not to be the the be like a damper but you know what as you progress you know what what things are you kind of focused on as a person um you know what excites you now because you've just done so much you know so what's that for you now well you know what really is exciting me right now the work that we do at the foundation um creating vehicles like this having interactions with you know, your generation and our generation and, and connecting the gap. But I think it's really exciting right now because this whole conversation about black versus urban, I think is a real chance to re-empower re the black executives that are in power now and to make these companies start rehiring black executives and giving them the opportunity to really grow. You know, mm. these, you know, black music divisions are great, and I, I would love to have them come back because I thought that was very empowering. But I know a lot of executives, a lot of my contemporaries, who were good enough to become presidents of companies, but they were never, and it was not because they didn't have the skill set. It was just because of the, you know, the, 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 the racism in the business. I mean, and, and you know what? And it's, it's racism and it's capitalism because nobody wants to share the money. <laughs> let's, 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 let's get it down. Everybody wants to control the money. And so, but I think, so for me, it's about, I'm trying to be on a cr crusade to connect with current executives, try to talk to some of these people who are at these labels and find out what are they doing to try to help empower. And, you know, my, I was fortunate, you know, I worked for a company that took, sent me to, to London for a week to executive training school, you know, what are these, what are these, so I could learn about the whole business and about the company that I was working at. What are these labels doing now to empower and to educate and groom uh, executives? That's important to me. You know, give them the power, give them, you know, one thing about it, we had, you know, they gave us the resources. Now, you learn about P&L and budgets. Now, if you, you know, if you weren't successful, you know, you wasn't going to move. You got to make your budgets. I mean, it's not just like party and hardy and all that. But to have that opportunity to do that and now have to go to somebody else. You know, there was a period right in the, the top of the 2000s when they started really breaking down these black music divisions and really doing the kumbaya thing. Uh, there were guys who couldn't even requisition, I, my term, they couldn't even requisition a pencil, you know. You know, I could at least sign fifty to seventy-five thousand dollars with no question. You know, um, but again, so I I think we need to get back to that point. So for me right now, that's my passion. I want to make sure that Chris is able to do what he wants to do in this business. That Rikia has what she wants to do, and her peers, and that we get this because when we do that, we create a whole ecosystem for ourselves. You know. I'm in, I'm in charge of a budget. I go and hire a black publicist. I go hire a black pub marketing person. You know, I got my boy in the hood. One thing I liked about the hip hop generation is that they always brought their crew around. Now they brought too many. That's why they, you know, the money didn't go that far. But it was about, you know, if I eat, everybody eats. Well, everybody can eat. You got to make sure they at least bring something to the table. You know, at least bring a napkin or something. But again, that's what I'm talking about. We've got to have that kind of system going again so that, you know, you can be empowered to do what you need to do. Because once we get that, you know, especially with technology, you know, why companies are really, technology scared them. I was there at the beginning of SoundScan. 
Napster and all that. You know, you, need, you used to need a, a label to fund you to make a record. You don't need a label to fund you to make a record now. You don't need a label for distribution now. Streaming has shown these things. So again, but they are important because it's always better to do it on somebody else's dime if you know how to spend somebody else's dime. So, you know. David, I, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead, no. Well, I mean, I, I wanted to piggyback off of what you said about, you know, what, what advice would you give young executives and young artists coming up in the music business today? Well, I think the biggest advice I would give, I would give artists and executives to get to know each other and support each other, you know, managers. Because when I was in, 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 in the seat, well, it's funny, I was going to say power, but the first thing they taught me in that uh, class where we went, they said, you don't have power, you have the illusion of power, but you do have the authority to do some things. <laughs> so, um, but... You know, for, for artists, if artists would support their executives, then the executives become stronger and they can create. That's the thing that really, when our, see, when we go back to the history, historically, real quick, Black Radio said they were, they were not wanting to take records from non-Black promoters. So record companies went and hired a bunch of Black promotion people to take their records to radio. And so then artists felt comfortable. Whenever an artist came in, you know, if, if, if a Varnell Johnson or if uh, a Jackie Reinhardt, who's uh, one on our board, who worked with Freddie Jackson, you know, we would sit with artists and we would break it down and say, hey, this is what you should do, A, B, and C. We, I used to always tell artists, there's two Davids. And there's a David, when you're in my artist, when you're in my office, I'm the brother, I'm gonna tell you what you need to know. Now, when I go out there, I got to be the corporate guy, and I'm going to say some things that's going to be to your advantage, but you got to remember. So when I bring you in here and tell you what I tell you, if I hear it out there, then I know I can't trust you. Because what I'm telling you now is not, is not what they're going to tell you. So when you, when, you, when you travel, you can ride first class, but you and your boys, somebody can ride and coach. The rest of them can get in coach because you got to learn something called recoup. Because when you make, when you sell millions of records and you still wind up with mom, that's because you spent it all up front. A record company is nothing but a big, high interest credit card. That's what I used to tell them. So again, that's, you know, those are the things that I'd like to see us be able to do so we can get back so that we, we can, and that's what the Living Legends wants to do. We want to be that resource to help guide um, young executives. And you know, the artists and the executive become tight, they can't move you. If, you know, a, a, a label said they want to fire an executive and all the labels say, hey, I mean, the artists come in and say, you better not fire him. That's my man. He ain't going nowhere. Learn something about a key man clause in your contract. Learn how to, con how to you, know, you know, do those contracts right with key man clauses, those types of things. So again, we want to be able to share all those things that not being shared. I mean, um, little things. Uh, like a lot of executives have the same attorney that the record company has that ha and, and the artist has. So if you got one attorney and he's got three interests, where That's do like you stand up? Where do exactly. you stand? So again, it's just a, it's a lot of, it's the little things that we know that could make a difference. And we want to be able to impart those things with you guys.
I think that's huge, man. And we appreciate that because uh, that is definitely, I think from both sides of it, I think from my generation and your generation, um, there's definitely major gaps. Um, and I think that doing something like this, like this platform right here, and hopefully anyone that gets to see this gets some of this information. But I think we have to, as not just the people, but also as gen generations, bridge that gap. Um, there's a lot of information that you guys have, and there's a lot of information I feel like we have. I think that right. we have a different perspective now that things have definitely changed, and they always will change. The only consistency is change, right? Um, so I think that we have to figure out how to bridge that gap, and I think this is a great platform to do that. Uh, just figuring out, you know, hey, wh what do we need to do, and what, and how can we, you know, get get to where we really need to be, you know? No, exactly. I love learning from you because I learn. I mean, I. You know, one of the best things about being back at it, it, being in radio and being at, at, at Clark, at Clark is that yeah. I'm around I'm around all these young minds. And so I'm learning things that I didn't. And we're learning how to do things differently. And we're we're trading off of each other and seeing that's how we grow. We're the only that's, you know, our people. You know, we've got to do that. We've got to learn our history and then we build on it. We, you know, I'm not ashamed of slavery. It was a dark period. But slavery tells me that I come from a strong people. Man. You know, just like, you know, so again, we just got to build and build. And so you can do what you want to do. And Rakia, you can do what you want to do. You know, I'm standing on the shoulders of the people who brought me in. Somebody mm -hmm. else is standing on my shoulders. Somebody's going to stand on your shoulders. So, you know, we just got to keep this thing going. As we wrap this up, David, I mean, I, I always like call to action, you know, like, mm -hmm. where are we going from here? Where should we go as people, as a people who love music, who, who loves the history of our music and, and wants to see it continually grow into the future? Where do we go? Well, I think what we have to do is we have to, you know, back in the day, we had a lot of organizations. And I think um, there's an organization that um, I've been having conversations with, you know, we have the Living Legends Foundation. Um, we're doing a, a lot of things we're doing. You know, we have our annual dinner, what we do. Um, honor people, you know, we help people when they have hard times. You know, we're there to provide people. We also have a scholarship program we started. But there's also a group that's just started because of this whole thing, the Black Music Action Coalition. That's mm. comprised of artists, musicians, I mean, musicians, business managers, attorneys. You know, we need some organizations to be formed where we can all get together and talk and come up with an agenda. We used to do that. We used to do it over the drinks at the bar, but we used to do it and we had all these, con <laughs> these conventions that we used to do, but we was always set a plan. And you know, when we had those plans, those things, so we need, everybody needs to come together and, and sit down and say, what is it that we want? And you know, again, I think for, for me, I, I love the fact that there is this activism, you know, Black Lives Matters, Black Music Matters. You know, for me, Black Music Month is every day. It's every month. It's not just, you know, in June. So we have to live it, breathe it, but we can't run away from it, you know, and we've just got to, I think it comes down to us to try to find that parity, but we've got to understand, we've got to come together because one thing, somebody takes care of you over there, then that's it. But that's what it comes to. You're, you know, it's just, it's, we got to get together. And I mean, and, and then we stake out. We want parity for executives if it's in the music industry. If it's for an artist, we want an artist, you know, to get that shot and have the right kind of budget and have the, those kinds of things. So it's, there's a lot of, 
I think it's very simple. I may say a lot of it, but it's very simple what we want, but it, we have to get together on the same page. And I think the, the power base is with the artists, the managers, the attorneys, because they run the industry. And then everything else kind of falls in place in my own mind. I think you're, you're spot on with that, without a doubt. I first and foremost, I want to say thank you for stopping in today um, and talking to us. This is amazing. Uh, I, I know I personally appreciate it. It's food for the soul. Um, I know Rikia can probably say the same. That's right. Smooth for the soul, soul music. That's what this is. is, is that there we go. Right? That's right. I worked that soundtrack. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Look at that. Soul? Yeah, the soul food soundtrack. Yeah, I worked yeah. that soundtrack. That was, man. It was okay. on the face Mama. records. Yep. Woo! Mama. That's, yeah, that's, that's my joint. That's okay, all right. Every Mother's Day that is played. I got a little Instagram video just for my mama. It works every time. She loved me that day. It's great. Music Day, a verified hit. Associate producers Jackie Reinhardt, Varnell Johnson, Vivian Scott Chu, Mark Hill, Tony Winger, Sheila Eldridge, Pat Shields. Ken Johnson and Shannon Henderson. Production by Mark Hill Creative and Five Times Media. Executive producer, Ken Johnson. This has been a Living Legends Foundation, Inc. production. Find out more about the Living Legends Foundation, Inc. or donate at livinglegendsfoundation.com. Music Day, a verified